Thank you, Betty, for your work in translation. That is not an easy task. Um, not one that I think I could really accomplish. <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> grateful for, for what you've done in taking uh, the message of the Word of God and making it possible for folks who could not otherwise be able to hear it and understand it. I uh, had a missionary once who told, uh, he, he was a missionary to China, just talking about the differences of languages and how difficult it is, and sometimes, particularly uh, in Asian languages, just the inflection of the voice changes a word to give it a completely different meaning. And uh, he said he was on a bus, and he was uh, trying to share the gospel with a lady there in China, and uh, he tried to tell her, speaking Chinese, uh, God loves you. And when he said that in her language, she immediately threw up her hands, screamed, and ran off the bus. <laughs> and he sat there dumbfounded. You know, like, what happened? And the bus driver turned around, he spoke English, and he said, well, what, what, what did you mean to say to her? He said, well, I meant to say, God loves you. And he goes, well, that's not what you said. You said, God wants to eat you. <laughs> and the same word, you know, the inflection of the voice went up instead of down or something, it changed it entirely. So I appreciate folks who do that work because it's not easy. Let me say a word also. I'm, I'm grateful for the, the folks who um, do the praise and worship, and it is such a blessing to, to have folks who are gifted in that way, both with voice and musical abilities. I'm not, uh, and, um, you know, <laughs> I, once, I once sang in church many years ago. It was so bad. I'm telling you, it, can, it confirmed my calling to preach <laughs> and not to sing. Uh, I tell people the angels wept and heaven's flag was flown at half mass for three days. But uh, other than that, it was okay. But <clears throat> anyway, I'm, I'm thankful for, for these folks. And I, I really appreciate the, the song that we sang, uh, the last one about I am a child of God. Uh, and we sometimes take that for granted. We really do. Uh, there's one, one uh, verse in there where it talked about no longer being a slave to fear. And I think the greatest fear that we have is the fear of death. That is the one subject nobody wants to talk about. No one ever calls you and says, come over, we'll have some coffee and donuts and talk about death and dying. It does not happen. We, we avoid that at all costs. But <clears throat> there's a verse in Hebrews that says that because of our relationship with Christ, and are being redeemed by his precious blood, that those who were in bondage all of their life to death, the fear of death, are now set free because we're a child of God. And so we rejoice in that. I'm going to continue. And by the way, if you're here for the first time and uh, wonder who in the world I am, <laughs> I am Kevin's father. Uh, and... Uh, we're here uh, spending a few weeks. Uh, we flew out of uh, sub-zero weather from Montana. I'm talking to some folks from Colorado right here, and uh, they had the same experience. And it's like stepping out of a deep freeze and into a sauna when you get off the plane here. So it's a bit of adjustment, but I'm, I'm beginning to thaw out. And by the time we get back, hopefully it'll be a bit warmer. We live in Hamilton, Montana, just south of Missoula there in the northwest corner. Beautiful place, uh, four full seasons. So we get snow, we get uh, all of it, but uh, we love it there. And uh, thank the Lord for our ministry. Been there 18 years, serving a church there, and uh, glad to be with you here today. 
If you have your Bibles, we're going to continue in our study from the book of Hebrews in chapter 12. And uh, <clears throat> in fact, let's look for me at uh, chapter 11, verse 1. And the writer of Hebrews gives us this definition of faith. He says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. I read this last week, but it reminded me, uh, I think it was John MacArthur once who said that uh, uh, what this really means when it says that uh, faith is the assurance of things hoped for is that it, it and, and the conviction of things not seen is that it allows you, faith does, to enjoy something that is in the future. And later in chapter 11, he'll talk about uh, Abraham and others who never actually acquired that which they looked forward to, uh, but they embraced it and saw it by faith. And uh, that's kind of what we were doing when we were getting ready to make this trip. We were in uh, minus eight degrees the Sunday before we left to come here. And I want you to know I was enjoying Guam already. It was in my heart and mind and I was envisioning myself walking on the beach in warm sand uh, in a short sleeve shirt. And uh, I, it allowed me to bring something that was future present tense. And that's what faith does. We look toward heaven, we look toward uh, the end of, 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 of our life and struggle and the embracing of the presence of God in the glory of heaven. And uh, we're not there yet, but folks, we can realize it just as Abraham did. And we can, uh, we can bring it into the present. And in chapter 12, he builds upon the testimony of those witnesses, not witnesses who watch, but witnesses who testify that the life of faith, living for God is worth it. So don't quit, don't give up, don't throw in the towel. In the first four verses, he talks about running the race that is set before us, not becoming entangled in the things of this life, not becoming trapped by the, the sinful things that uh, you know, tempt us, but keeping our eyes on the author and finisher of our faith, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he talks about his suffering, what he endured in securing that salvation for us, and how to reconsider him who endured such hostility and sinners against himself and not grow weary and lose heart. And then we come to verse 4, and we're going to pick up there <clears throat> and uh, complete this today, or this portion of it. Uh, and uh, I want you to look at verses 4 through 11 today. So let's begin by reading it, and then we'll ask for the Lord's grace. He says, You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. You have not, you, and have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons, for what son is there whom the father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers, to discipline us, and we respected them, shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. All discipline, for the moment, seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields a peace, the peaceful fruit of righteousness." Heavenly Father, we pray that as we look to this passage today, you will open it to our hearts and minds. We're thankful for the word of God. Thank you, Father, that you've given it to us. For Father, in this uh, book, you are the God who has revealed himself. 
who has manifested yourself before us in all your glory and majesty and power. And we thank you for that. Thank you, Father, we're not left in the dark to wander, not knowing what your will would be, how to live our lives, but you've given us a roadmap to follow. You've given us epistles and Old Testament passages and the Psalms and Proverbs full of wisdom and grace, and we thank you for that. And thank you for this passage. Thank you for the author who wrote it. Thank you that it was inspired by your Holy Spirit. And Father, we pray that you would open our hearts today that we might receive it, we might understand it, and you might, Father, touch us at the point of our need. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Where is God when it hurts? Where is God when it hurts? Suffering and uh, difficulty has been a problem for the saints of God all throughout history. Job was the most godly man of his day. In fact, Job chapter 1, verse 1, says that he was blameless, upright, fearing God, and turning away from evil. And yet, in a series of catastrophic events, all of his children were killed. All of his earthly possessions were stripped from him. He was covered from head to toe with boils. And he is described as sitting upon a pile of ashes with a broken piece of pottery, scraping his sores, trying to find some relief from the pain. And all that is left to this man is an embittered wife who whispers in his ear, why don't you just curse God and die already? And then he has three well-meaning friends who fill the air with uh, pious platitudes and the kind of trite uh, religious cliches that drive suffering people mad with frustration. And the question comes to Job, where is God when it hurts? And Job replies, though I cry to God, I get no response. And though I cry for help, there is no justice. And then in chapter three, 23, in verse 3, he says, Oh, that I might know where I might find him. And down in verse 8, he continues that thought. He says, Behold, I go forward, but he is not there. And backwards, but I cannot perceive him. When he acts on the left, I cannot behold him. When he turns on the right, I can't see him. But he knows the way that I take. When he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. My foot has held fast to his path. I have kept his way, not turned aside. I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more precious than my necessary food. But he is unique, and who can turn him? And what his soul desires, that he does. For he performs what is appointed for me, and many such decrees are with him. I think that David was a man who struggled with a great deal of difficulty. He's described as being a man after God's own heart, but when his son Absalom rebelled, took his throne, the nation rose up against him, and he became a fugitive with a price on his head. And he cried out in Psalms, in anguish and pain, in Psalms chapter 22, and verse 1, he said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Words that would be uttered by our Savior some centuries later. This is a messianic prophecy, but also from this point, it's, it's David's, David's heart speaking out. He says, far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. Oh, my God, I cry by day, but thou dost not answer by night, but I have no rest. I think Jeremiah experienced 
such questions. Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet, and for good, good reason. One of the greatest prophets of the Old Testament, I think, an underappreciated prophet. And yet, when he walked down the streets of his beloved Jerusalem, stained with blood, raped and pillaged by the Babylonians that God had sent to carry them off into captivity because of their sin and rebellion against him, he cries out in Lamentations, and he says this in chapter 5 and verse 1, Remember, O Lord, what has befallen us, Look and see our reproach. And by the way, when I read this uh, this last week, uh, Kevin took us, uh, my wife and I, to visit um, uh, a museum that gives the history of the island and the Chamorro people and, uh, and their experience under uh, captivity uh, of, the, of the Japanese soldiers during World War II. And it, and it very vividly portrays their suffering and, and what they went through. And, and it almost read almost like Jeremiah here when he said, <clears throat> Our inheritance has been turned over to strangers, our houses to aliens. We become orphans without a father. Our mothers are like widows. We have to pay for our drinking water. Our wood comes to us at a price. Our pursuers are at our necks. We are worn out. There is no rest for us. We have submitted to Egypt and Assyria to get enough bread. Our fathers sinned and are no more. And it is we who have borne their iniquities. Slaves rule over us. There is no one to deliver us from their hand. We get our bread at the risk of our lives because of the sword in the wilderness. Our skin has become as hot as the ovens because of the burning heat of famine. They ravished the women in Zion, the virgins in the city of Judah. Princes were hung by their hands. Elders are not respected. Young men work at the grinding mill and youth stumble under the loads of wood. And he goes on and on for several more verses describing this immense suffering. And finally, in verse 19, he says, Thou, O Lord, dost rule. Thy throne is from generation to generation. Why dost thou forget us forever? Why dost thou forsake us for so long? Restore us to thee, O Lord, that we may be restored. Renew our days as of old. That's Jeremiah the prophet. You ever had such thoughts? You ever wondered in the midst of difficulty, God, where are you? Where is God when it hurts? You know, I think that C.S. Lewis, even being the great scholar that he was, had a few times in his life when he wondered that, and he struggled with that. He was a man who blessed countless thousands of Christians throughout the years by the wonderful books that he had written. But <clears throat> when his world came crashing down around him as his wife, Joy, lay dying a slow and painful death from cancer, bone cancer. He later would write about his struggle in a little book, a haunting book <clears throat> entitled A Grief Observed. And this is what he said. He said, and this is what we write. He says, meanwhile, where is God? This is one of the most disquieting symptoms of all because when you're happy, so happy that you will have no sense of needing him. If you turn to him with praise, you will be uh, loved and welcomed with open arms. But go to him when you are desperate, when all other help is in vain, and what do you find? A door slammed in your face, the sound of bolting and double bolting on the inside, and after that, silence. And you may as well turn away. You ever felt like that? You ever Ask that question, where is God when it hurts? That is the question that was being asked by the people in this book of Hebrews. 
first century Jews who had converted to Christianity. They had come to believe that Christ indeed was the promised Messiah. They embraced him as their Lord and Savior, and almost immediately they began to be persecuted, sometimes by their own family and their own fellow Jews, because they had turned to this new sect called Christianity, and this man that they claimed to be the Messiah. And some of them were disowned by their own parents, disenfranchised, they lost their jobs, disinherited, their wealth and possessions were taken from them. They ended up, depending upon the mercy of others, perhaps wondering all the time, where is God in the midst of all of this? But I want you to know that the question, where is God when it hurts, is answered in this passage before us today. Because <clears throat> that's his message for us. Before we look at that, however, <clears throat> I, I want to just, if I could, explain a few terms and phrases. And if you have your Bibles, go back and look at uh, verse 4 and 5 of Hebrews chapter 12. We looked at uh, verse 4 last time, but I want to point out a few things uh, and explain uh, what they truly mean. Uh, first of all, he says, <clears throat> in your striving against sin, and that word striving there is the Greek uh, antagoni zamahi, and we get our word agony from that, agony. It was an athletic term that was used to describe uh, a wrestler who was engaged in an agonizingly difficult match with a very strong opponent. And notice the opponent that they're struggling with here is sin, but not necessarily their own personal sin, but just the sin of this world that we live in. We live in a fallen world that's full of disease and hunger and death and, uh, and war and turmoil. And, and living as a Christian in the midst of that, particularly in the midst of persecution, uh, was, was a difficult thing. And so they're living in this fallen world, and Satan's attacking them, others are attacking them, and, uh, and so he, 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 he gives them this encouragement. Then the second thing he says to them is, you have not yet resisted. And the word resisted there is the word antikathistemi, and this word is, again, a compound word, one word meaning, it comes from one word meaning to stand face to face, and the other to stand against. Uh, so it's, it's really a military term. It referred to the front line of the infantry. In those days, battle was fought very different than we would fight it today. No such thing as guerrilla warfare in those days. But you would make a line, and you would march ever forward until you confronted the enemy face to face and nose to nose. And there, of course, would be the great, greatest loss of life and injury right there on the front line. And, uh, and so that's what he's talking about. In fact, later in life, uh, with the invention of gunpowder, we would come to call those folks cannon fodder because they would often uh, sacrifice them uh, for the success of the battle. So <clears throat> these are the people that he's describing here with these words resist, people who are uh, involved in face-to-face, hand-to-hand, nose-to-nose combat, fighting for their very lives. And notice in the next phrase, he says that they haven't done this to the point of shedding blood. And the point is not that, that they're not bleeding, but that he wants them to understand that pain always accompanies the shedding of blood. These people are dealing with a life-and-death struggle, and it's a painful, agonizing struggle. Then look at verse 5 for this next phrase. Is you, have you forgotten the exhortation? And that word uh, that's translated as exhortation, some of your Bibles, I think, even translated as encouragement, which is maybe a better word, comes from the Greek perklesis, which is another compound word, 
One meaning in and another uh, courage. It means to put courage in someone. These are people who are in desperate need of courage. In the midst of this hand-to-hand combat with this world that they're living in and the situation of persecution they're dealing with, uh, all of the pain and all the agony that goes with suffering and persecution, these people were losing that battle, losing their courage, and they needed to be exhorted toward greater faith in God. So where does this courage come from, this encouragement? It always comes from the Word, from the Word of God. And so the writer quotes an Old Testament passage that many of them, being former Jews, were well familiar with. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 11 and 12. If you have your Bibles here, look with me, not at Proverbs, but at our text. uh, And notice that uh, the second half of verse 5 down through verse 8 is a quote from Proverbs chapter 3. And some of your Bibles will have it in italics, some will indent it, so that you know that it's it's, uh, a quote from the Old Testament. And he says, let's read it again. He says, my sons, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are approved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. Uh, It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Now you need to keep in mind that extra-biblical literature of the first century tells us that there were two prevailing views that permeated the early church there in Palestine with regard to this question of why am I going through difficulty? Why is this happening? Why am I suffering? Two typical responses of that day. Number one, was people would say, well, God's abandoned me. He's just abandoned me. And they arrived at that conclusion because in the Jewish mindset of that day, God brought to those who loved him and obeyed him healing and prosperity, goodness and blessing. That sounds a lot like what we hear today on the TV channels as we flip around and catch a few prosperity gospel folks preaching and maybe even the word of faith movement that God blesses those who have faith and who are faithful, and those who don't, they don't get that blessing. And so if you were sick, or in poverty, or suffering, the people of that day would say that God had abandoned you. And that's kind of what Job thought, isn't it? God's abandoned me. He's nowhere to be found. That's what David thought. That's what Jeremiah was struggling with. And so what was their first response to suffering and fear? It was God has abandoned us. But then there was another view that was prevalent in that day, and that is that some would say, God hasn't abandoned me, but he's punishing me. He's very intricately involved in my life, and he's punishing me for something I've done. So what is it I've done? And Job even struggled with that as well. He said, what have I done that I have incurred all of this? I've lost all my children. I've lost everything but my wife who wants me to go ahead and kick the bucket and get out of here. So she can maybe collect my insurance. I don't know if he had insurance, but, you know, she was not very encouraging to him. And so the writer of Hebrews comes to us in this passage, and he wants us to understand two things that he's going to make clear. And that is, number one, God has not abandoned us. And number two, God is not punishing us. God is disciplining us. And there is a huge difference between punishment and discipline, as we shall see. 
So <clears throat> we see in this passage before us today four lessons that we can draw from this passage that hopefully will help us in times of difficulty as well. First of all, uh, I don't know if it's up on the screen or not, uh, but um, we need to see our disappointments as disciplines. And we're going to look at verses 5 and 6 and then key on verse 7 as well. We need to see our disappointments as discipline. Now, I know that some of you may struggle with that and wonder how in the world that can be, but let me encourage you to hang on for a moment and let me ha have a moment to explain this if I could. All the hardships of life are indeed God's discipline, moving us further down the road of sanctification and the confirmation uh, of our life uh, to be more like Christ. I'm often reminded of Martin Luther's dictum that three things make the theologian prayer, study, and suffering. <laughs> and, uh, I don't know if we get too excited about that, but I would change that to say not just theologians, but all true servants of God. I have found in studying the great lives of great men of the past and women of the past that almost without exception, anybody who was ever greatly used by God also first went through a time of great struggle. Some health, some the loss of a loved one. I was reading about Dr. B.B. Warfield, Benjamin Breckenridge Warfield, who was called the Lion of Princeton, back when Princeton was a seminary. It's not anymore. In fact, uh, it's not even close. But he was the champion for the truth of the word of God. And uh, little is known what he had to deal with. But B.B. Warfield, he got married to his sweetheart. They left on their uh, honeymoon, went to Germany. They were in the Black Forest. They got caught in a terrible uh, storm. And she got struck by lightning. And it affected her for the rest of her life. And she was basically bedfast for the rest of their marriage. And that man cared for her. He loved her. He served her until she was taken home by the Lord. And he would speak different places, but never far enough where he couldn't be home that night. He never traveled far from her. He served her all of his life. But that was a hard thing to deal with. And I could literally stand up here and tell you stories for an hour about such great servants of God. All of them went through a time of difficulty. Sometimes I think it's God's seminary, spiritual seminary, for those who would be great servants of God. Charles Bridges, in his commentary on Proverbs, writes, Nowhere, indeed, are our corruptions more manifest and our graces more shining as under the rod of our God. J.C. Riles, in his book on holiness, titled Its Nature, Hindrances, and Difficulties, he writes this. He says, I fear it is sometimes forgotten that God has married together justification and sanctification. They are distinct and different things beyond question, but one is never found without the other. All justified people are sanctified. All sanctified are justified. What God has joined together, let no man dare to put asunder. Tell me not of your justification unless you have also some marks of sanctification. Boast not of Christ's work for you unless you can show us the Spirit's work in you. Think not that Christ and the Spirit can ever be divided. And notice once again that opening statement in verse 7. It is for discipline that you endure. And what he wants us to understand 
is that all the hardships of our life is God's discipline in our life. And if that statement troubles you, then it's most likely because you have attached a different meaning to the word discipline than the writer of Hebrews intended. So let's define this term discipline, if we could. It comes from the Greek word pahadia, which is comprised of two words, once again, compound word, one meaning child and the other meaning training. So child training. This is a word that is rich in meaning. So the word discipline isn't talking so much about a parent applying the Board of Education to the seat of learning, you know what I'm talking about, <clears throat> as it's talking about uh, just everything that comes along in life, both blessings and buffeting, good things, bad things, sunshine and rain, and using them to shape and turn the heart of a child toward maturity and virtue. Therefore, all the hardships of life are by God's sovereign providence, his hand of loving discipline, moving us further down the road of sanctification and becoming more like Christ. But yet there's a different word that is used at the end of verse 6, if you notice it. He says he scourges every son whom he receives, and that's really a different word. That literally translates whip or lash. It is the word mastigoi. I told him in the earlier service about my dad when I was a kid, and there were six of us in my home when I was growing up. And uh, anyway, we, uh, we had parents who believed in, in spanking. We didn't call it that. We called it a whooping because that's well beyond a spanking. <laughs> but um, in any event, my dad decided we needed something that would symbolize, you know, his authority in the home and, and uh, the consequences of disobeying. And so he, he made this paddle. He went and bought him some three-quarter inch marine plywood so it would last and not break. And uh, that's a good thing, is it probably wouldn't have lasted otherwise, but uh, he cut it in the, in the shape of a paddle and then he drilled holes in it so it would sting when it, when it made contact with your posterior. Uh, I told him years later, I said, Dad, if, 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 if you could fast forward 20 years, uh, you would have been in prison. <laughs> he abused it so. <laughs> no, I survived and I'm okay because of it. But anyway, that thing, as he brought it down, it would whistle as it came down, and we called it death from above, <laughs> and, you know. And uh, anyway, but that, that was my dad, and uh, I told the men at the breakfast uh, a week or so ago, uh, there were some issues with my dad, but I, I never doubted that he loved me. He just lacked the ability to tell me that, you know. And uh, if you knew his grandfather, I mean my grandfather, his father, then you would understand that. Uh, sometimes I think we need to cut our parents a little slack and uh, you have to realize what they're working with and what they were trained and realize that they, di they didn't have all the tools, uh, sometimes even less than we do. Thank God if you're in a church that teaches you how to love your children, how to correct your children, how to raise them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That's not being taught in a lot of places these days. In fact, it's being condemned. We're being told that they belong to the state and not, not to you. No, God gave them to you. And it's your responsibility to raise them up in virtue and honesty and integrity. In any event, my dad had this paddle, and he would apply a bit of mastigoi <laughs> to us upon occasion when we needed it. But the writer's point here is that God's discipline involves a loving, caring God who trains us <clears throat> as immature children, and he trains us and instructs us even sometimes by bending us over his knee and applying a bit of discipline. Now, let me 
make uh, two points of clarification, if I could. Uh, and the first one is this. This does not necessarily mean that all suffering and hardship is from God. That everything that's difficult that comes in your life is because God is making this to happen. Yes, God is sovereign over all that does happen. And nothing ever catches him by surprise where he's not able to bring his will to fruition. But we need to recognize, folks, let's not kid ourselves. There are consequences to the decisions that we make. When Dr. R.C. Sproul, who I think probably had more influence upon my life and my theology and approach to ministry than any other one man, but uh, he was head of Ligonier Ministry, great uh, scholar, uh, but uh, when he died, I think it was 2017, from cardiopulmonary complications as a result of smoking cigarettes all of his life, that was not God's discipline. It was the consequences of a decision he made as a very young man before he ever became a Christian, and he continued to practice that until about 10 years before he died. But by then, it was too late. The damage had been done. So God wasn't correcting him or disciplining him. That was just the law of the harvest, folks. And Apostle Paul talks about that in Galatians chapter 6, verse 7, when he says we are deceived if we think that we can sow seeds and not reap a harvest. He said, be not deceived, God is not mocked. Whatsoever we sow, that shall we also harvest. Not all suffering is hardship from God. Sometimes it's a result of the dumb, knuckle-headed decisions we make, amen? You don't want to call it that, but that's what they are. Not all suffering. Okay, secondly, there is a profound difference between punishment and discipline. Between punishment and discipline. Discipline has a view of correcting and improving that we might be better because of it. Punishment does not. Punishment is only applied in cases where there is no hope. And so when they send someone to prison who had been convicted of a capital crime, and they give them a life sentence without the possibility of parole, folks, that's not corrective discipline. That's punishment, pure and simple. They are not trying to rehabilitate anyone in that, in that situation. They are simply housing them until they finally die. Does God punish? Yes, he does. He punishes the wicked now, and he will punish them at the end of this age. And don't believe that. Just go and look at Second. Thessalonians chapter 1 verses 7 and 9 where it talks about him returning a second time and this time he will not come as the meek and mild Messiah he will come as the mighty king and judge and those who have shook their fist in his face and said we will have nothing to do with you and they turn away from him they will suffer the consequences of living without a savior and rejecting the only one that's offered and it will not be pleasant by the way, if you're here this morning and you do not know Christ as your Lord and Savior, I encourage you, I plead with you, not just to consider him, but to run to him and embrace him as your only hope of salvation. For he alone could pay the debt of our sin and be our Savior, and he indeed is. Eventually there will be those folks who reject him will be cast into the lake of fire where the smoke of their torment, the Bible says, will rise up forever and ever, which is not exactly a prospect of hope and restoration, is it? Well, we must hurry on. Notice, if you will, on your outlines, the second lesson <coughs> we draw from this passage is that despite the warning here, 
And we need to see our God as a loving father, a loving father, verses 5 through 8. And I want you to notice once again how verse 5 begins. It says, have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? And I think by implication we could also add daughters in there uh, as well. Sons and daughters. And what he's uh, referring to here is the intimate father and child relationship. Like all good fathers, we are disciplined by this father because he loves us. And he warns us not to respond to this father's love, his loving discipline, in the four following ways. Number one, four negative responses we need to avoid. Number one, don't shrug it off. Verse 5b, he says, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. And this phrase, regard lightly, is very interesting in the Greek. It means don't see it as insignificant and meaningless, as something unimportant. That is here today and gone tomorrow without any eternal significance. Listen, when the God who has numbered every hair on your head and who knows every star by name and every sparrow by name that falls in his omniscient wisdom allows certain hardships to come into your life, trust me, he has a purpose and it is important. Don't shrug off the, uh, his, his discipline as, as being insignificant, but don't rationalize them away. Don't see them as some kind of natural occurrence cause and effect that has no significance or meaning for you, but rather we should look at every difficulty we face through the lens of what is God trying to teach me now, that I might be more like my Savior. Then secondly, he says, don't lose heart. Verse 5 continues and says, nor faint when you are reproved by him. This is the opposite extreme, you see. This is not someone who takes for granted the discipline of God and blows it off as nothing, this is someone who takes it so seriously that they're devastated by it. It cuts the spiritual legs out from under them, and they wonder if they'll ever recover. And the way to deal with that is to remember God's purpose. Remember, he's not out to punish us or to rip us apart, destroy us. He's out to carefully train us and equip us to fulfill his purpose in our life. Then thirdly, he warns, don't doubt that you are loved and accepted. Notice verse 6 again. He says, For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines and he scourges every son whom he receives. Young people, you may not believe this, but if your parents would invest the time and energy and effort that it takes to discipline you when you're disobedient, that in itself is proof positive that they love you. Any parent can be lazy and not do what they need to do. That's the easy way. To look the other way and say, oh, kids will be kids. You know. But when you have to sit your child down and explain to them why what they did was wrong, why God wants them to do differently, and what he instructs them to do, and then the consequences that result from that, that takes energy and effort to the point that it wears you out emotionally, if nothing else. So don't ever doubt that because they won't let you do what you want to do or go where you want to go, that they somehow have been sent by God as, you know, an emissary to destroy your life and ruin everything that's, you know, good and happy. I want you to listen to what C.S. Lewis says in another book he wrote. It's called The Problem of Pain. And I love this. This is great. He writes, we do not want so much a father in heaven as a grandfather in heaven. <laughs> I like that because I am one. 
And, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I tell people being a grandfather is so much easier than being a father because you can just spoil them and then send them home, you know, and uh, don't have to deal with them. But uh, he's talking about here uh, the fact that that's the way we sometimes see God. He said, <clears throat> you don't want a father in heaven so much as a grandfather whose plan for the universe was, to, was such that it might be said by all at the end of the day, a good time was had by all. I should very much like to live in a universe which was governed by such lines. But since it's abundantly clear that I don't, amen to that, and since I have reason to believe that nevertheless that God is love, I conclude that my conception of love needs correction. Isn't that good? Young people remember that. If you think that your parents don't love you because they won't let you do what you want to do and go where you want to go, maybe you need to correct your concept of love and the same is true for us big kids too by the way us adults the fact that God corrects us and disciplines us proves that he loves us and wants the best for us and that we're a part of the family so don't ever doubt it but then there's a fourth and final warning he said don't forget who you are look at verse 7 and 8 once again don't forget who you are he said it is for discipline that you endure God deals with you as sons for what son is there whom the father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Now, let me just say, and I said this in the first service, I don't particularly care for the term illegitimate children because I don't think there's any such thing as illegitimate children. I think there's a whole lot of illegitimate adults who father children and then abandon them <clears throat> but I don't think there's anything in illegitimate children. Uh, every child that's born, that's brought into this world, whether it's out of wedlock or not, is a precious gift. And precious in the sight of God. For some years I served on the board of crisis pregnancy in uh, San Francisco as a chaplain and got to experience a great deal of the heartache that comes from from such decisions that people make. But uh, let me tell you, children are precious. And it's not just quality of life. Life has value. Life has value. And I, uh, I appreciate the fact that this church at Bayview supports a ministry that is helping women who are in trouble, women who are pregnant without a, someone to to guide them and, and give them counsel or a place to stay. And you're using the, uh, the uh, center over here. I can't remember what you call that. It's the center, I guess. And there's a ministry that is, that is there. Um, and we talk, got to meet some of the ladies uh, involved with that uh, and what they're doing. And that is, that is so encouraging. May God bless this church for valuing life, the life of the unborn. We practice at our church in, in Montana. I don't mean this as a condemnation of those who don't. We practice something called integrated worship where we worship as families. Everything we do, we do as families. So little children are involved in everything, in the service. And we have a cry room where we take the baby out when they, when they do cry, and, and that's good. We encourage them to do that because sometimes they can out-preach me, <laughs> and you can't hear. <laughs> and, uh, but uh, in any event, uh, we, we do that. And, um, but, you know, occasionally you'll have a, a little baby begin to cry, and I just rejoice in that. I rejoice that here is a voice that is able to cry. It makes up for the millions of others who never had a voice. 
whose life was cut short because they were an inconvenience to them. That's sad. All life has value. And don't forget who you are as a child of God. We sang about it this morning. I am a child of God. I am a child of God. In ancient times, to be born without a father, however, a legal father, put a child at a great disadvantage. Because in that day, it was understood by all cultures everywhere that it was the job of the father to train up and discipline that child. And if you're not being trained up and disciplined, there can only be the logical conclusion, you don't have a father. But if every time you begin to wander off the reservation, get in trouble, go the wrong way, take the wrong path, the heavenly father reaches down and jerks a knot in your neck to get you back on track, that's a good thing because it means you're a child of God. It reveals your true identity. No father disciplines other people's children. We discipline our own. And if God, as the shepherd, takes that crook and gets you around the neck to pull you back into the fold when you wander astray, that's just a reminder of who you belong to. Don't ever forget that. So discipline's a good thing. It's a healthy thing. And so the writer of Hebrews encourages these persecuted Christians to remember that all hardships, even the suffering that God allows, comes from a hand of a loving Father who is training us in righteousness that we might be like our Savior. Then the next thing we see, number three, we need to have a proper attitude toward discipline. Three quick things here. In verses 9 and 10, he points out three proper adjustments in our attitude toward discipline. Number one, we need to respect God's discipline. Notice verse 9, he says this. He says, furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. So, <clears throat> we see a need to respect the discipline process and the father who administers it. Now, the Greek word translated here as respected in verse 9 is really just perfect. It means to turn around and face something. Maybe you had a father who would say something like, it's time to face the music when, you know, discipline was about to be administered. I remember when I was growing up, <clears throat> Dad would say his, his line was uh, because our, the paddle that he made hung on a, on a nail in the kitchen, and he'd say, go get the board. <laughs> and that's what we called it, the board, and to meet me in the bedroom. And so you'd make that walk of shame, and every other sibling was like, as they watched you go to your death, you know, it's, it's kind of like someone on death row, you know, dead man walking <laughs> as you go to the gas chamber. And you'd pick that up and, and bring it back and give it to dad. And then he would begin to play the music that I was required to dance to. And it was not a pretty tune. But, uh, <clears throat> but he, he did what was needed. And I want you to know, we never doubted for a moment our parents loved us. My father lacked the ability to tell me that, but I could see it. And I knew he loved me. And we had great respect for the whole process of parental discipline that they employed. And what the writer of Hebrews is doing is he's arguing here, as it's sometimes called in, in Greek uh, rhetoric or debate, uh, an argument called opiocentori. It means from the lesser to the greater, sometimes from the greater to the lesser. But in this case, he's, he's, he's holding up an earthly father and saying that this father on earth, who's limited in ability and limited in love because we're fallen creatures, if he would do this for you, how much more can you trust the discipline of a heavenly father who has unending love 
unending wisdom and power. And so that's the example he gives us. Don't doubt that God means goodness for me. Secondly, we need to submit to God's discipline. Verse 9b continues, and he says, Shall we not much more rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? And the word subject or submit there means to come up under something and bear the load. Not only do we face the discipline, we come up under that and we willingly submit to it. So many of us, we try to squirm out and weasel out of God's discipline. We're like the young man who sowed his wild oats and then prayed for crop failure. You know, we're like that. Try to, you know, kind of negotiate with God. No, you don't negotiate with God. I don't think, I, I, I can't even imagine when I was a kid, Dad taking me to the bedroom and then me saying, oh, Dad, here's what I think ought to be done. Uh, no, <laughs> that would not happen. Uh, there was no negotiation. Uh, we submitted to whatever God gives us and whatever he brings into our life, and we know it's best. And then thirdly, we need to believe in its goodness. Verse 10, he says this. Verse 10. For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. And notice he's contrasting here the short, limited time of discipline that an earthly father has with the perfections and the ongoing discipline of a heavenly father that doesn't end when we get married and have our own children. God continues throughout our life to take care of us until he takes us home. He disciplines us continually, and it's for our good that we may share in his holiness. So, just to kind of recap, number one, we need to see our disappointments as God's disciplines. Number two, we need to see our God as a loving father. Number three, we need a proper attitude toward discipline, understand what that means. And finally today, we need to see the positive results of his discipline. Verse 11, once more. It says, all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet for those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now two things to remember, and we'll wrap this up. Two things. Number one, you don't have to enjoy discipline. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, I, I get a little weary of people who are always preaching, you need to rejoice in everything. And when the doctor tells you it's cancer, you're supposed to say, praise God. No, God doesn't expect that of us, okay? Uh, and he doesn't expect us to rejoice when difficulty comes. God's not a sadist. He's not calling us to masochism. If you weep and shed a few tears during a time of great difficulty and sorrow, uh, that's just part of the emotional makeup that God has designed for us to process difficulty, and it's okay. But then notice, secondly, once we get a grip and get our spiritual feet on the ground, we're to look forward, this is number two, look forward to a good harvest. And that's what he says in verse 11. He calls it, in fact, the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Sometimes the farmer may wonder if that harvest is ever really going to come in, and that's where some of you are right now, perhaps, you're going through some unsettling things in your life, and you may say to me this morning, Pastor, I hear what you're saying. This passage from Hebrews is clear. I know that God works all things together for my good. I know that his discipline is 
as a loving father, and it's, 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 it's what's best for us. I, I know I need to be submissive to God's discipline and believe in its goodness. I know that I should look forward to its positive results, but I want you to know that the only part of this principle that I can relate to this morning is the one that's mentioned at the beginning of verse 11 where it says that all discipline for the moment does not seem joyful but sorrowful. That one I can agree with. That's the only principle I can relate to this morning. One that's covered at the beginning of verse 11. Well, of course it is. And it's not wrong to say that. Even the writer of Hebrews acknowledges that. But what God wants us to do, and verse 7 says it, is to endure it in faith. Don't run away. Don't get bitter. Don't get cynical. Don't begin to envy other people who aren't going through what you're going through. Just know that the Father loves you. Rest in his grace. Learn what he wants you to learn and follow him as he brings you through it and on to heaven. I was reading the other day about a family named Cole. And they lived in the Washington, D.C. area. And they had lost their teenage son, Jonathan, to leukemia. And so they had a funeral. And it was at a funeral there in the 10th Presbyterian Church. And a whole lot of people showed up. This young man was well known. And one by one, folks got up and gave a brief testimony of how he'd touched their life and how he had impacted them. And finally, after some time, his older brother got up. And he stepped to the podium. And after a long pause, as he gathered his thoughts, he looked up and he said, I guess I speak for the whole family when I say this. I want you to know in the last year, God has not answered a single one of our prayers. Not one. Not even a simple request to help the doctor find a vein where he could put a needle. Not even one. And now Jonathan is dead. And speaking for the whole family, I want you to know that if God never answers even one more of our prayers, ever, we will still praise him for what he's done for us in Christ. I read that and I thought, wow, that's in gustial strength faith. <laughs> Where does someone get something like that? How do they come to something like that? You get it from the word of God and from understanding the practical outworking of the Christian faith. And as Paul said in Philippians 4 and verse 7, it gives you strength and peace that surpasses all human understanding. The world knows nothing about that, by the way. When you're dying of cancer and you're still praising God and thanking God and lifting high his name, they will scratch their heads and say, what in the world's wrong with them? <laughs> when my wife had cancer and she was in the hospital, and uh, they had done the surgery on her initially. And the nurse came in and she uh, tried to correct my wife's joyfulness. And she said, what's wrong with you? you don't you know you have terminal cancer? You're far too happy. <laughs> and she tried to straighten her out and say, you, 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 not, you shouldn't be this way. You're not 
you know, at grips with what's going on here. And so she, she didn't change, by the way. She kept praising God. And God, in his grace, decided he'd heal her, maybe just to trouble that nurse, I don't know. <laughs> but I think because he knew I needed her. And I thank God for that. So no matter what comes your way in this race, as you carry that baton to pass it on to the next generation, regardless of your difficulties, regardless of what you may be going through. I met a family here that's stuck and can't go back to their island this morning. And so they're having to find a place to live. Praise God. He is faithful. Trust him. Rest in him. And know that the very worst that can happen to a child of God is to die and go to heaven. And how bad is that? <laughs> Praise God. Would you pray with me? <coughs> Father, we thank you. And we thank you for your grace. And Lord, I want to lift up the parents here this morning, particularly. Especially those who are struggling to keep their kids on the right path. Help those young people to know that their parents love them. Help them to understand that God has a claim on their life that he's not going to let go. Help them to realize, particularly if these parents are in leadership, decisions they make can impact their life and the lives of their parents as well. Father, we pray that you would guide their path, and I pray you'd encourage those parents in your grace to love them and guide them back to you. Father, I pray for those who are struggling with a serious illness or who have loved ones who are, that, Father, you would help them to see your hand in all things and know that death comes to all of us if you should tarry and help us to trust you, rest in you. Give us hearts to believe and to love you and feet to, faith, feet to move forward in faith, we pray. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand with us as we sing the last song. Lord, I need you. Lord, I come, I confess.